now we'll get back into our study of the men around Paul, the men who served Paul, the men who shaped Paul, and as we're going to see as well, some of the men who challenged the Apostle Paul. And I just want to refresh where we've come so far. Earlier on in the fall, after looking at Paul himself, we studied the example of Stephen and how he functions as a prototype for faith and how Paul himself, uh, after Paul is converted, Paul is one to mimic the kind of preaching that Stephen did at his martyrdom. We studied Barnabas, one who is known as a beacon of optimism, the son of encouragement, and learned what it means to to be that, that beacon. We looked at Mark, also called John, a trophy of redemption, a, a man who exemplifies redemption in his own life, how he failed the Apostle Paul and yet was restored and considered to be one of Paul's closest friends near the end of Paul's life. We looked at Silas, this pillar of stability, this quiet man who served with Paul in his second missionary journey and was with Paul there in the Philippian prison singing hymns and giving thanks to God after having been brutally beaten. We looked at Timothy, Paul's young son in the faith, who gives us this paradigm of what it means to be a disciple. We also looked at Peter, a man who comes across Paul's path occasionally and who shows, him to be an, who shows himself to be an apostle of contrasts in really a good sense. We know a lot of Peter's shortcomings, and yet we also, in that study, looked at the contrasting qualities that Peter exhibited, especially near the end of his life. We also looked at Luke, this man who, who, who serves as a model of devotion, how he served the Apostle Paul, how he served the church so wonderfully through his ministry as a physician, his ministry as a, as a preacher, traveling companion, his ministry as a historian. Tonight we're going to look at a lesser known man. In fact, as we get into the second half of our season of, of Men of the Word, we're going to be looking at lesser known men around Paul Aquila is one of those lesser-known men, although he was not lesser-known to Paul. In fact, in many regards, Aquila and Paul had a very, very close relationship in many different different contexts. And as we look at Aquila, what we're going to see tonight is that Aquila really serves as a model of being a patron of missions. A patron, the word patron, uh, means to be a supporter. It means to be one who provides of his time, of, of his material belongings, of his finances, in support of some cause. And Aquila, together with his wife Priscilla, as we will see, really summarizes what it means to be a patron. And he was a patron particularly of the gospel mission, the Great Commission. And as we look at Aquila tonight, I want us to to focus on four qualities of this man. First of all, we'll see that he was a patron of missions and that he lived a great commission marriage. He he lived a great commission marriage. We're going to see how his marriage was devoted to the things of the great commission. Secondly, we're going to see that he fostered a great commission home. He fostered a a home environment which was all built around the furtherance of the gospel. 
Third, he possessed a great commission theology. He possessed a great commission theology. He wasn't just about numbers. He wasn't just about providing finances and material help to the spread of the gospel. He really was concerned about the message of the Great Commission, as any true patron should be about any cause that he supports. And then fourthly, we see that Aquila, along with his wife, exhibited a Great Commission loyalty. A Great Commission marriage, a Great Commission home, a Great Commission theology, and a Great Commission loyalty. Now, before we get into those four points, we have to set the context. Who was Aquila, generally speaking? What do we know about him from Scripture? We know this, that Paul became acquainted with Aquila around the year AD 50 on Paul's second missionary journey, and he becomes acquainted with Aquila in the city of Corinth. That's very important. We'll come back to that. But the text reads this way. Luke records their their acquaintance in these words, Acts 18, verses 1 to 3. After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and They were working, for they were by trade tent makers. Very interesting words. From these words, we can tell this. Aquila was a diaspora Jew. He was a Jew who lived in in the exile, essentially, among the Gentiles. And so sometimes we call that a diaspora Jew. Sometimes we call that a Hellenistic Jew. And we read that he was raised in the region of Pontus. And so if you look on the map here, You can see where Pontus was located. It was a region that was joined together with the Roman province of Bithynia along the southern shores of the Black Sea, which is uh, the the north part of modern-day Turkey. We also know of Pontus uh, from Acts chapter 2, verse 9, where Luke also records there that Jews from Pontus had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost, and that's of course, when the church was born. So perhaps that is when Aquila himself maybe then heard the gospel. We, we really don't know, but we do know there was a, a certain population of Jews there in Pontus, and Aquila was one of them. He was married to a woman named Priscilla. Her formal name, her Latin name was Prisca, but Priscilla is what we call the diminutive name. It's kind of like Lizzie, if, if we say Elizabeth is the formal name, Lizzie the short name. In this sense, Prisca is the formal name and Priscilla is is the, the, the informal name. And so in the scriptures, in the New Testament, we see both names. Sometimes Paul will call her Prisca, sometimes Priscilla. Sometimes Luke will call her Priscilla and sometimes Prisca. It's the same, same woman. We don't know whether she was Jewish Uh, She may have been a proselyte to Judaism, but Luke simply doesn't tell. He simply says there was a Jew named Aquila who was married to this woman, Priscilla. Now, Aquila was probably a Roman citizen. Now, we don't know for sure, but by virtue of the descriptions used of Aquila, that he lived in Rome, that he had his own business, that he could travel freely, 
that he was a man of means suggests that he wasn't a slave, but a freed man. In fact, some have suggested that perhaps Aquila uh, grew up in Pontus, had been a slave to a slave owner, and that slave owner really appreciated Aquila's work, brought him to Rome, and as was the custom, when a slave owner would bring slaves to Rome and free them in Rome, they would become freedmen or Roman citizens. And it's possible that's what happened to Aquila. And so he just stays there in Rome and takes up residence and as a freedman develops his business. Now, Luke records this interesting statement that he came, uh, that, that Aquila came to Corinth from Italy. Now, the reason that's, that, that uh, Aquila had to move to, to Corinth is explained in these words. Verse 2 of Acts 18. Because, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, we know that Claudius had made this anti-Semitic declaration probably in the year AD 49. And what precipitated that declaration, that decree, is described by another source, a secular ancient historian by the name of Suetonius, who said that the Jews had been constantly making disturbances in Rome over a certain person named Crestus. That's what, that's what uh, Suetonius says. And as a result of this debate and this, this disruption caused by this Crestus, Claudius decided to expel all the Jews automatically from Rome. Scholars have postulated that Suetonius' reference to Crestus is a mistake in that Suetonius, writing in Latin, mistranslated what he knew or what he had heard about this person that was causing all this debate, which was perhaps and most likely the person of Christ. In other words, what Suetonius is referring to there in the 8040s Leading up to AD 49, the Jews were debating and arguing among themselves over the Christ. And it's likely that around that time, the church had been established already in Rome, apart from Paul, and that the the Jewish Christians were trying to, to evangelize other Jews. And because of this, as we know elsewhere in the New Testament, the Jews who hated Jesus, who did not believe that he was the Messiah, revolted, and this is what the cause of the unrest was. And so Claudius says, all right, I'm going to deal with this real quick, all Jews out of Rome right now. And so in AD 49, Aquila, he's probably a believer by this time, but he was still ethnically Jewish, he had to leave. And so he takes his wife and heads to Corinth. Now, there's another interesting statement that's made in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. It says, For by trade they, speaking of Aquila and Priscilla and Paul, they were tent makers. Now, this is the only text in the New Testament that sheds light on the trade that the Apostle Paul had. He was a man who worked with his hands. He was not afraid to work with his hands. In fact, there's a whole study we could do looking at Paul's work ethic, his refusal to be a burden to others, and that he would not avoid physical manual labor. Even in that day, in 
first century Greco-Roman empire, there were some Gentiles who looked down on physical labor as being something below civility. That was something that the slaves did. But not Paul. Paul was not afraid. He had learned this trait of being a tent maker, and we have a reference to that here. But Aquila is also described that way. Now, what's interesting to note here is this word that's used for tent maker in the Greek is actually an extremely rare word, and we really don't know precisely what it means. Some scholars have said that this actually describes what would, we would know today as a stagehand, somebody who would set up props and items for theatrical performances. And some scholars have actually said that that's what Aquila did. That's what Paul did. He would build props for theater. Now, that's a very minor view and doesn't really hold a lot of water. Others have suggested, more popular view, is that Paul was a weaver. In other words, because Paul had grown up in the city of Tarsus, and because Tarsus was known for the production of a material called silicium, silicium was goat hair that had been woven together, some have suggested that Paul learned how to manufacture materials out of goat hair. That's what some would say, and so they would say that Paul was a weaver. Others, and more traditionally, are translations, the NES and the ESV translate this as tent makers, uh, one who manufactures tents for civilian and military use, but probably the best definition of this term is a term that would include tent maker, but more. Paul was probably better described, along with Aquila and his wife Priscilla, as leather workers, as those who made tents, as well as anything related to leather, such as belts, awnings, shoes, ships, etc. That's what Paul did. Now, it's interesting to note this for just a moment, that Paul would have learned this trade from his father. It was a Jewish custom that fathers teach their sons, in particular, how to supply for their own needs using their own hands. It's, that was a very important Jewish custom. Unfortunately, we've lost it today. A lot of young men grow up not knowing how to take care of themselves. But that wasn't Paul. In fact, there's a, there a Jewish proverb that says this, and, and we know that this is true today. It's a Jewish proverb, an axiom, right? Whoever does not teach his son a craft teaches him to be a robber. That was a well-known ancient Jewish rabbi. So the Jewish parents, the fathers, would teach their sons a trade, and, and it's likely, as I said, this is leatherworking. Now, leatherworking involved two essential tasks, cutting the leather, which required round-edged and, and straight-edged knives, and sewing the leather, which would have required various awls to poke through the leather. These tasks would have been done at a workbench with the leather worker sitting on a stool and bent over forward to work. And you see an ancient uh, picture here, an ancient Roman engraving of a, of a stone here, and it pictures more or less what leather workers would do. Now, the convenient thing about this was that this was a very easy trade to travel with. All you needed was your bag of a couple of knives, a couple of awls, some needles, and, and that was more or less it. You would travel easily with that in a little travel bag, and whenever you reached your location, you would then buy your supplies, your leather, right there in location. So it was very convenient 
for Paul. And it's notice, or noteworthy as well that it was known that leather workers would, become, would, would have hands that became seriously calloused. You can imagine that kind of work, especially with the kind of tools they had in that day. And this perhaps explains why Paul in his letter to the Galatians says that you see with the such large letters that I write. Possibly a reference to the fact that Paul had very calloused hands from the kind of physical labor that he did. Now here's, I just have on the screen, just a picture of the kind of things that would be manufactured by a leather worker, things like awnings that you see there and, and tents as well. Now why the move to Corinth? Why did, why did Aquila, when he was expelled from Rome, move to Corinth? Why not to Spain? Why not to Ephesus? Why not to Jerusalem? Just an interesting fact that there was a very important sporting event that happened every two years just outside the city of Corinth in a city called Isthmia. It was the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games in importance. Now, Isthmia didn't have any permanent structures. So what would happen would be that every two years, a tremendous crowd of Greeks would gather to watch the games. They needed tents and all kinds of other goods. So it's possible that that Aquila, knowing that the games were going to come, they would be held in 8049, 8051, on those odd years, that Aquila decided there's the place, lots of work. And Corinth was a great cosmopolitan city, and it required a lot of, a lot of laborers. Now with that in mind, let's look at what made Aquila such a great patron of the Great Commission. Number one, he had, he lived a great commission marriage. He lived a great commission marriage. Aquila and Priscilla illustrate the meaning of what it means to be one flesh. In every place that Aquila is mentioned in the New Testament, and there's, there's six of those, he is always mentioned together with his wife, never apart from her. In fact, one scholar has said they are the most prominent couple involved in the first century expansion of Christianity. Unlike the other well-known couple in the book of Acts, the infamous couple, Ananias and Sapphira, this is the opposite. This couple is the opposite. Aquila and Priscilla provide for us what it means to live in this harmonious relationship of a husband and a wife, both of whom have the gospel as their center. One writer said this, they furnish the most beautiful example known to us in the apostolic age of the power for good that could be exerted by a husband and wife working in unison for the advancement of the gospel. In this case, indeed, two are better than one. And we find that with Aquila, we find that he exemplified what it means to live in harmony with a wife and to have the primary motivation of their marriage being the glory of God as expressed through the furtherance of the gospel. Now, it's also interesting to note how this couple is mentioned whenever they are mentioned. And this is kind of fascinating. Two of the six times that this couple is mentioned... Aquila's name comes first. And the order of names in the New Testament is very important. It's not just arbitrary. 
Two of the times, two of the six times, Aquila's name comes first. But four of the times, in other words, the majority of the cases where by Luke or Paul refer to this couple, four of the six times, Priscilla comes first or Prisca, that name appears first. Now, some have postulated that perhaps this was because Luke and Paul are giving deference to Priscilla because maybe she had a, or came from a higher social standing than Aquila. Some have suggested that maybe that's because Priscilla became a follower of Christ, of, of Jesus Christ, before Aquila. But I don't think either of those really, really explain the situation. I think just naturally, it's better to see that both Luke and Paul list Priscilla first because of their great respect for her exceptional devotion, her exceptional character, her exceptional service. This shows us that indeed there there must be respect for women in the church and their ministry. As we see with this couple, it's, it's servant ministry. It's the work of deacon and deaconess. But we see that in the New Testament, both Luke and Paul have great admiration and respect for Priscilla. And we see that, that, that in this context, there's no hint on Aquila's part of, of intimidation, that his wife is perhaps more skilled in service. Or we don't see any hint that, that Aquila is jealous of the success of his wife. Not at all. No intimidation. Instead, with both of these individuals, this husband and a wife, committed to the gospel, they are able together to devote themselves fully to that work and not at all be troubled by the fruitfulness of the other. In fact, together, they are able to do more than one. And Aquila is able to help his wife employ all the giftedness and skills that God had given her to the good of the church. And listen, men, sometimes in our emphasis on male leadership, this reality gets overlooked. We think that our wives just belong in the kitchen, just need to raise the kids, and just need to stay at home. That's often a misconception of male leadership. That's not what we see in Scripture. In fact, male leadership must exist. We are the head of our homes, and Paul makes that clear elsewhere. And he does say that women are to submit to their husbands. But our job as husbands is to do all we can to enable our wives to steward the gifts and abilities God has given them for the good of the church. And sometimes that means they will do more than we will for various reasons. And we must not be intimidated by that. We must not be jealous over that. We must instead, with our leadership responsibilities, foster that in a way that allows the church to benefit from their ministries. That was Aquila. He led this great commission marriage. Secondly, they had a great commission home. They fostered this great commission home and We see it in several passages. Let me just go through this rather quickly. In Corinth, in the years 80, 50 to 52, Paul's second missionary journey, when he's in that city, we read these words, as I've already read, that when Paul met Aquila, he went to stay with Aquila and Priscilla because they had 
the same trade. And obviously, Aquila and Priscilla had the same business. This was a a very great fit for Paul. But what we see is that immediately upon learning of each other, Aquila and Priscilla open their home and take in the Apostle Paul. And he probably stayed with them for the duration of that ministry in Corinth for the 18 months, according to Acts 18 verse 11. 18 months there, Paul would have stayed with them. Now, what's not often recognized in this is that Paul later on describes to the Corinthians that when he arrived in Corinth, AD 50, he arrived from Athens, and he arrived in a, in a particularly weak situation. He describes it in these words. He says, when I came to you, I did not come in superiority of speech or of wisdom, but I was with you, Corinthians. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You see, what we see from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we we realize that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he was beaten down. He was worn out from the opposition that he received. He continued to preach Christ, but he was running low on fumes. And you can see the providence of God in this meeting as this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, leather workers, open up their home to this missionary, take him in, provide a roof over his head, provide him with employment in their business, and provide him with spiritual refreshment. That's what patrons of the gospel do for missionaries. One writer said this, one of the highest forms of hospitality is to provide religious sympathy and cheerful intercourse for those who might otherwise be depressed in their solitary round of service. That was Paul when he got to Corinth. And that's often the state of many missionaries when they come back for a rest from the field. Aquila didn't do this just in Corinth. He did it also in Ephesus. What's interesting to note is that when Paul finished his ministry there in Corinth, it would have been around the year A.D. 52 when he wraps things up in Corinth, And he says, listen, now I want to go to Ephesus. But before I go to Ephesus, or before I minister there, I'm just going to make a brief trip. I've got to go to Jerusalem and then I'll come back again. And he, and, and, and what does he do? As he leaves Corinth, he sails across the Aegean Sea eastward to make a brief stop in Ephesus. And he takes with him who? Aquila and Priscilla. They came with Paul to Ephesus, and he leaves them there in Ephesus and says, if God wills, I'll be back. And that was important. That was not just coincidental. He left them there because they were reliable. He left them there to prepare the soil for his return. And and sure enough, just a few months later, Paul is on his third missionary journey, and he comes back there to Ephesus and sets up shop for three years in Ephesus, has a tremendous ministry, and it's likely there that he stays again with Aquila and Priscilla. We don't know that definitively. We do know that while Paul was in Ephesus, he did work his craft. It's likely that he did it together with Aquila. But we do know this for sure, that when he is in Ephesus during those three years, they're ministering. He writes back to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, and in that long list of greetings, and, or in that, that list of greetings in 1 Corinthians 16, 
He says this, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Churches didn't have buildings in those days. Perhaps Paul resided there and once or twice or more a week in their house, in this place that doubled as a workshop, believers would gather. Priscilla and Aquila would clean up the rooms, not very big, push the supplies to the side, and allow Paul to preach to the people who were there. These were patrons of the Great Commission. But it didn't end there. After Paul's ministry in Ephesus, three years, around AD 55, his time in Ephesus has come to a close. And he says this in Acts 19.21. He says, or, or Luke writes this, that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. So Paul is done in Ephesus. Now it's time to go to Rome and beyond. And what do we find? Well, Romans, the letter to the Romans was written in AD 55. The year before, Claudius, the one who had made the decree that no Jew could live in Rome, Claudius died, AD 54. When Claudius died, the force of his edict, his anti-Semitic edict, came to an end. Jews could return to Rome. Now Rome was open, and Paul says, now I'm headed to Rome. I want to go to Rome. Now, what's interesting to note is this. As Paul leaves Ephesus, as he said, he wants to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, visiting the churches really quickly before going to Jerusalem and then heading to Rome. As he's back in Corinth, visiting them for just a short period of time, thinking of his trip to Rome, he writes to the Romans and he says to them, get ready for me, I'm coming. He says, he says, I want to come and I want to spend time and be refreshed by you. And at the end of this letter to the Romans, what does he say? He says to them, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks and greet also the church that is in their house. What had happened when Paul left Ephesus is that Priscilla and Aquila left Ephesus as well. And in the time that it took Paul to travel around the Aegean Sea to visit those churches, Aquila and Priscilla had transferred and, and moved back to the city of Rome and again opened up their home for the church, provided a meeting place for the gospel to be preached and for saints to be encouraged and edified. And so when Paul writes to them and says, get ready for me, and he wants to go to Spain, He's thinking of Aquila and Priscilla and probably thinking, I'm going to stay in their home once again. By the way, remember, as I said, New Testament churches had no buildings. And, and as they've done excavations, they've come up with some, some uh, evidences and, and remains of these ancient marketplaces. And this is often how it would look. There would be, around the marketplace, there would be these these, these rooms that had been built, these homes or buildings that had been built with vaulted uh, ceilings and a, and a floor, a wooden floor placed halfway up. And down below would be the place for the workshop, 
And so in this case, the leather and, and all the utensils and instruments used for that. Up above would be the place of, of lodging, of rest, of eating, and so on and so forth. So you could picture this, that perhaps Paul stayed down below, Quill and Priscilla upstairs, but when the church would come to a place like this, it could either easily gather around 10 to 20 people. They would come to this kind of a, a location and this kind of a building and meet together for prayer, for the reading of Scripture, for communion, and for the singing of hymns. Now, what's interesting to note is this. As in Corinth, as one writer says, as in Ephesus, so in the great metropolis of the empire, Rome, Aquila and Priscilla have the high distinction of making their home a shelter for those who profess the name of Christ and a means for consolidating the and extending the church. Look at this map and you see those black dots. Those are places where Aquila and Priscilla's hospitality was used to further the church. Number three, a great commission theology. I'll go through this quickly because this has to do with the education of Apollos, and we're going to deal with Apollos next week. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but in Acts chapter 18, at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, remember he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, stating that I want to come back and spend a significant amount of time there. Now, as Aquila and Priscilla are preparing the ground for Paul to return, they, they go to the synagogue and they hear this great preacher by the name of Apollos. And what we read of Apollos is that in one way, he did accurately teach the things concerning Jesus, but he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. And so when Aquila and Priscilla listen to him more, they realize he hasn't heard everything. And so we read in verse 26 that when they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now again, we'll deal with this next week, but what this refers to is the fact that Aquila knew a lot, but not everything. What he did know, he taught accurately and passionately, but he didn't know the whole story. So Priscilla and Aquila take him aside. He wasn't teaching error. He didn't need to be rebuked, but he did need to be informed. And this patron couple, these leather workers, proved that they were not just leather workers. As patrons of the gospel, they cared about doctrine. They cared about the full gospel. They cared about its accuracy and its teaching. And they were not afraid to take this learned, eloquent man aside and say, we have a little bit more to tell you. You see, that's what true patrons do. They're not just concerned about numbers. It's not just about seeing their name on plaques and buildings. It's not just about seeing how much they can give materially. If you're a true patron for a cause like the Great Commission, you care about how that Great Commission is preached. And that's Apollos, or that's Aquila and Priscilla. And we'll look at that a little bit more next week. Finally, number four. As great patrons of missions, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla exhibited a great commission loyalty. A great commission loyalty. And we really see this in Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and following, where first of all, we, we see this greeting, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this term before my fellow worker, my fellow workers. It's a very special term. 
Paul didn't use it to refer to all believers. He used it for a select limited number of those whom he specially trusted to fulfill tasks on his behalf. They were, it was a term that was used only to refer to Paul's closest companions. They were his fellow workers. And that word fellow workers comes from the word sunergas, from which we get the word synergy. It, was, it, it defined those with, with whom there was synergy as they worked together. And Paul says, Aquila and Priscilla are, are in synergy with me. But more than that, what we see in this greeting that he gives to them, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now notice the verses three and four of Romans 16, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Literally that statement, it again testifies to their one flesh nature. Literally that statement reads, who for my life risked their own neck. It's very interesting. It's in the singular, not the plural. He refers to them essentially as having one neck. They were so united. But what we see from this, this idiom that they risked their own necks, it's not just some kind of superfluous exaggeration. This is a reference to the fact that at some point in the previous history before the writing to the Romans, Aquila and Priscilla had, had done something to put their lives on the line at great risk in order to save the life of the Apostle Paul. We don't have the details on what that was. It could be connected to Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. He, he says elsewhere that in Ephesus, he says, I fought wild beasts, he said. He said in Ephesus, he says, you know, I despaired even of life itself. It was so difficult there because of all the opponents. We don't know the details, but this we know that Priscilla and Aquila, both of them were willing to offer their lives in exchange for the safety and protection of the Apostle Paul. That is amazing. One writer said this, he said, they were ready to die to save Paul's life. This great sacrificial act, Paul could never forget. It set Aquila and Priscilla apart among friends. They were henceforth knit together by this blood bond. The fact that they escaped with their lives in no wise decreased Paul's sense of obligation to them for their heroic deed. It was loyalty to the limit. And Paul cherished the memory of their courage. As I thought about their example, it took me back to the words of Jesus in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Aquila and Priscilla were willing to do that, not in theory, not in the abstract, but at a very real historic moment in a very concrete situation, they did it for the Apostle Paul. They did it ultimately for the sake of the church, for the sake of the spread of the gospel. They, know, they knew who Paul was. And that's why Paul says, I am beholden to them. I give thanks to them as do all the churches of the Gentiles. And we today can be thankful 
that Paul's life was spared on this, on this human level. We know God's in control and he can do as he pleases. But on this human level, we can be thankful for Aquila and Priscilla because whatever they did, they enabled the Apostle Paul to keep on living and to keep on serving, to keep on preaching, to keep on writing, even to write the wonderful letter to the Romans. That's what a patron does for the, for the sake of the gospel. Now, in conclusion here, let me summarize their lives. A.T. Robertson says this, No group of friends would be complete that did not list or include these two interesting persons whose lives evidently played a prominent part in the history of early Christianity. And you know what, men? We need gospel patrons like Aquila and Priscilla today. Let me charge you with this. What are you doing with your marriage? If you're single, what are you doing with your singleness? If you're unequally yoked, what are you doing with that for the furtherance of the gospel? What are you doing with your home? How are you using that most basic resource that you have to further the gospel? What are you doing, not just in, a, in an abstract sense, but in a practical way? How are you using your home? What are you doing to, to help with the spread of accurate theology? What are you doing to put your life on the line so that preachers and missionaries can have safety and sustenance to do their work? A lot of men will say, well, I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm not called to be a pastor. That could be very well true of you men. But that doesn't mean you have no role to play in the Great Commission. The Great Commission needs gospel patrons. And you need to think exactly and precisely and concretely how you can use your business, how you can use your trade, how you can use your marriage, how you can use your home, how you can use your money, how you can use your time, how you can use those things for the furtherance of the gospel. Just like Aquila and Priscilla, these leather workers just as they did for Paul and the mission of the first century. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this example of this beautiful couple that provide for us a real-life historic example that marriages can be used for the furtherance of the Great Commission, that homes can be used for the support of gospel labors, that our trades, our skills, even though they may be secular in nature and that they don't directly involve the teaching and preaching of the gospel, they can be used for the furtherance of your purposes here on earth. And that even our friendships, even our offers of loyalty and support and companionship can be used to aid those who are involved on that frontline work of preaching the gospel. I pray that you would impact all of us, impact these men here, so that they would think in new and creative ways to see how you have uniquely blessed them to use whatever they have further your beautiful gospel. That amazing grace that speaks about the deep, 
love you have for your children. We ask this so that your name might be lifted high, especially in those places where it is not yet named. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask. Amen.